Welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, where it's all about, you guessed it, grant writing and funding made easy so you can increase capacity, grow funding, and advance your nonprofit or freelance mission. Now, let's hand it over to your host, grants expert and author Holly Rustic, so you can increase your funding and drive impact. Hello, hello, hello. It's Holly Rustic here with Grant Writing and Funding, and welcome to the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast, where I'm here to help you grow capacity, increase funding, and to advance mission. All right, guys, so we have a great episode for you today where we're actually going to go a little cerebral here, but also it's very tangible. So I have Kami Akavan here, and he is going to be talking a lot about this whole political divide. Yes, it does impact nonprofits. How does it do that? And how can we be aware of being able to still have funding sources who may be on opposite sides of the political spectrum or social spectrum or any of that? Um, If you even should do that, all of those types of things. So this is very, very relevant to listen to today. But before I I get into this whole introduction of Kami, I also wanted to let you guys know um, that you should definitely check out grantwritingandfunding.com. You can go there for all of our show notes today and to find out more about Kami at the Center for Political Future. Um, And that is at grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 238. So definitely check that out. And while you're there, please do check out our Hub Haven and all of our free resources if you want to join our weekly newsletter where we have our grant writing and funding Hub Haven, and we have a zillion checklists. You can access different checklists, grants formula, uh, how to get your business started in five simple steps, etc. We have so many goodies inside our Hub Haven, and each week, you get a newsletter. So we have upcoming webinars, things we're doing, as well as curated resources that I have found for you that are relevant in today's nonprofit and nonprofit consultancy arena. So just like today, we're talking about uh, different types of political divides and polarization and how we can mend these gaps, right? Because as we are a part of nonprofits, really it's a part of our duty to advance social movements. But as we all know, the world is a little bit tricky right now. So um, this is a really great podcast to listen to to find out some more information about that and to start these really needed conversations. So once again, do visit our website, grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 238 for all of today's links and resources. All right, so a little bit about Kami Akavan. He is the former CEO of ProCon.org, the nation's leading source of nonpartisan research on controversial issues. And he now leads the Center for the Political Future at the University of Southern California. As the executive director, Kami oversees the operations of all center components, including the UNRWA Institute of Politics, the Fellows Program, the USC Dornsif Poll, and Community and Global Engagement. He writes and speaks on numerous topics, including the origins of and solutions to political polarization, improving interpersonal communication, the awesome power of debate, nonprofit leadership, digital marketing, civics education, and so, so, so much more. He is a moderator, panelist, and keynote speaker on elections and current political events, as well as hot topics from marijuana legalization to gun control and from the death penalty to physician-assisted suicide. 
With more than 20 years of experience in bridging divides at the national level, Kami's work has served more than 200 million people, including students at more than 12,000 schools in all 50 states and 100 countries. So he brings a lot of knowledge to this. I'm really honored to have him on the podcast. And um, just, I had a great conversation with him and I hope you enjoy this conversation and walk away with some really good points to take the stress off of you um, as far as what the kind of climate that we're in right now and to actually move forward with some hopeful solutions, right? And the way that we present um, our topics all the way to who we talk to, how we talk to them and so much more. I really think that this can neutralize a lot of um, the political polarization that we have um, with some of the things that he talks about today. All right, so once again, jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 238 for all, all of today's show notes. And here is Kami. Hello, hello, hello. It's Holly Rustic here with Grant Writing and Funding. And I'm super, super duper excited this week. We have an amazing guest, as we always do. But this week, it's going to be fun because we're going to talk about some controversy. Woo! Yes, we are. We're going to talk about how it relates to your nonprofit and to kind of discuss controversial issues and how to lay out the playing field of how much maybe your nonprofit should advocate, right? Maybe you don't want to get your 501c3 revoked through lobbying or how, but you still want to be a part of the social movement, but you don't want to alienate, alienate your funders and so much more. Oh my gosh. We're going to talk about that today with Mr. Kami Akavan. And you're going to be talking about that. You have a great history and experience. You're the former CEO of ProCon.org, the nation's leading source of nonpartisan research on controversial issues. And you now lead the political or the Center for Political Future at the University of Southern California. So I'm really excited. You teach classes on this as well. You're bringing your expertise to um, all the people here at Grant Writing and Funding. And I'm super duper excited for you to share with our change makers out there. Welcome, Kami. Well, thank you, Holly, for this very generous introduction. I hope I can live up to that hype and what I have to share with you and the folks listening to today's podcast and watching on YouTube. So thanks for spending your time with me as well. Um, I have a lot to say about this topic and none of it makes me happy uh, because we're living in some very highly divided times in our society. Uh, stakes are high. People are on edge. Uh, some people feel like we're we're really on the verge of a civil war. Some people think we're already there. We're just fighting that war with keyboards and pens versus knives and guns. Mm-hmm. However you describe it, it feels awfully divisive. And I know for many of us, we've unfriended people on social media because of what they said and how we perceive it as harmful. We've stopped talking to, in some cases, neighbors, coworkers, family members, because of controversial issues. So what I'd really like to get at today, and I appreciate you inviting me here, is to talk about what we can do about it, right? I I do like to talk about how bad it is, just so there's some motivation for getting out of the rut that we're in. But also, what can we do? You know, it seems so overwhelming, and it seems hopeless at times, but hope is not lost. There are things we can do, and I, I will highlight those, and I can specifically highlight how they can be harnessed in ways to improve nonprofit revenues and to help your nonprofit organizations in their advocacy and education work. Oh, I love that. And, and yeah, you're right. I mean, 
you know, we keep hearing that the, the country is polarized. And of course, we're talking about the United States here. Um, we're talking about, you know, the divisions, the, you know, the friends lost, family members, like, you know, maybe unfriended or not around anymore because of these different ideological you know, issues and priorities and pivots that we all have, like we all have these perspectives from our own experience, right, our own background, and we bring it to the table. And it's hard to find middle ground, or it seems hard, let me rephrase that, it seems hard to find middle ground to actually talk about a lot of these issues. Um, so I really appreciate the work that you guys do, especially the bipartisan work, right, into bringing that into perspective, because whether you you know are following politics or not, it's about movements. It's not just about politics, but that definitely is a realm um, that is affected too, right? N nonprofits aren't a silo. We still operate in politics. Obviously, you know a lot of grant funding comes based on politics, right? Um, and we also operate in the economy. We operate in society. So these are, we can't be isolated, although sometimes we feel like we need, we need to be silent or we can't participate in controversial issues because we're afraid of this funder, that supporter, whatnot, right? So how do, how do we come to a place where maybe it's not a, it's not just we can't, so divisive, we can't talk. How can we come to maybe a starting conversation? Yeah, so I think fundamentally we have to recognize that if I feel like it's really difficult to have conversations with people because of how tense and defensive people can be, how high stakes these conversations can be, it's not just me, it's not, it's not just you. Everybody is feeling this tension and because it is so universal and because I didn't cause it and you didn't cause it, there's a little bit of a release we can have and say, this is not my fault. You know, this is my problem. I've inherited this problem. We've all inherited this problem, but this is not my fault. And whenever we enter into a conversation saying, I didn't cause this, you didn't cause this, we're just kind of living in this mess, that takes away, with that perspective anyways, it can take away some of the heat from that conversation. We realize we are just, we are innocent uh, bystanders in something much more powerful, a bigger dynamic that's happening within our society. And so we're just trying our best to do something about it and do something positive. So that mindset I think matters a lot. And honestly, there's something that's called the exhausted majority. This mindset I've described is shared by about two thirds of the people living in the United States. They believe that the way forward involves working with people of different political ideologies. It doesn't look that way when you watch cable news. No. It doesn't look that way when our communities become increasingly homogenous and we're not really exposed to people from, from other ideological viewpoints. Right. But that is the reality, is that most of us think that the way forward is together. So I think that mindset is really important going into any of these conversations. But beyond that, there's specific strategies we can use in those conversations. There's specific tactics we can use to try to address the more systemic problems for why this thing keeps happening. But where I'd really like to start, and this is the long way of answering your question, which is a, it's really a profound question, because we have to understand the depths of how bad things are to really understand what the way forward is. The same way we learn from history, we need to learn from our own history of division in order to understand how we got here. So yeah. then we can see that path forward a whole lot more clearly. 
Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree with that. You know, and I, and I love that coming into the table instead of just like, well, what's your, what's your position on this? It's like, wait, 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 wait. How did I even get to this position? Let's talk about the system, right? So I love that so much because I, I recently did a webinar on this and I talked to you in the green room before about gender equity in, in the nonprofit sector. And part of the beginning of that was just like, wait, what is the male default? Why, why is there a male default? Let's look at that. Let's look at the number of characters on TV that are even non-human that have male names, like it's all around us. So, you know, looking at the whole context or the whole system structure really then takes away like, well, are you being equitable? For, you know what I mean? And you're not, we're not pointing fingers, right? We're just saying, why are we even in this situation? Let's break it down. And I think that's so important when you look at it that way to say, oh, yeah, maybe I do have a bias potentially about anything, right? Because of the system, because of what what's surrounded me, because of how I grew up, right? I mean, if we watch any movies from the 80s, like we're going to see it's completely different conversation than today. What would be in the movies? Like, they let that happen, huh? Right? So it's interesting. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I love my, my 80s movies, but you're so right. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I've... I was looking at a breakdown of party polarization, how often members of one party will support legislation or for another party. And they were tracking this from the 1870s, so immediately following the Civil War, all the way through the modern era. And we have surpassed the division from the Civil War era today. We've surpassed it in about 2009, and now we've gotten worse. So when people look at how divided we are as a nation, they say, is this, it feels really bad. Is this as bad as it's been? Well, by that measure, by political party measures, yes, it's as bad as it's ever been. Yeah. Another way that I like to look at it is based on the competitiveness of our elections. Uh, so that means when you look at the margin of victory that a candidate has when they when they win in their, their local county elections, typically you see single margin, single percentage margins of victory. And someone will win by two, three, four, five percent, right? And that used to be the norm. But now those close elections are increasingly rare. So in a way, our democracy is, and I, I know I'm using a loaded word here, our democracy is rigged. And what I mean by that, it is rigged because our elections are increasingly uncompetitive. Those single digit margins of victory, they were about a third of all our races in 1992 third of them were decided by 10 percentage points or nine percentage points or fewer. Flash forward to 2016, instead of a third, they're now a 10th. 303 counties had 10% or fewer uh, percentage point margin of victory. There's something else called a landslide victory where the candidate will win by more than 50 plus percentage points, right? Overwhelmingly so. In 1992, that was 3% of all our elections were landslides. They're rare. They're unicorns, right? It never happens. 2016, it's almost 40% of our elections are landslides. And the reason why is because of partisan gerrymandering. They're cutting up electoral districts to favor certain parties. Both parties do it, but it makes those races increasingly predictable. 
you know it's going to be a Republican in this region of Kentucky. You know it's going to be a Democrat in this part of Atlanta, right? We know that. It's just which Democrat or which Republican. So the primaries become an increasingly big factor. But nobody votes in the primaries, you know, 10 percent, 12 percent, you know, in a good year uh, yeah. in the primaries. So who shows up at the primaries? Really partisan voters. They're super motivated. So yeah. you have the extremes coming out to vote for who's going to win the primary. And then it comes to the general election. And most of us are scratching our heads going, is this as good as we can do? We have these like super extreme candidates. Well, yeah, because that's how the system was rigged because of partisan gerrymandering to favor these candidates, to give them these advantages. So it's so bad, though. I just want to share this statistic out of 435 House districts, right? That's the entire House of Representatives. How many were considered competitive in 2016? 6%. So the magic of democracy, where you're not sure, is it going to be the Dem that wins, the Republican that wins? I don't know. 6%. The rest of them, so predictable. Wow. That's not real representative democracy. That's not what we signed up for when we started this revolution against the tyranny of a dictatorship. But that's where we are now. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And I, I see it. It's funny because here I am on Guam, right, as I mentioned, and we just finished Super Saturday, right, last weekend. So we had our primaries here. And, and I think we had 30 some percent vote. So it's actually quite high, but for here it's low because yeah. smaller communities, right? You you kind of like I personally know a lot of the candidates, right? So you're going to show up and vote, and when you understand that how important the primaries are, right? So yeah, but then it is it it does leave more of that extreme up. So that's so interesting that you broke it down that way, and yeah, it's just the people who are really the campaigners, right, that are going to show up for those primaries. But that makes the difference right there, like you said oh, for sure. You're so right. I mean, it's so true. It's one of the main causes of our division is really this partisan gerrymandering, increasingly homogenous communities. But there's so many of them. Like, think about people going to the mall, going to church, participating in unions. Those numbers are all super low. Going to concerts, super low. Like, participating in Little League and sports and these things, they're all on the decline. So, you can stay in your home, order your groceries, watch your movies. You don't need to go to the, the theaters. You don't need to go to the grocery store. There's just less of a, a public square. That public square is shrinking. We're not exposed to people from different uh, perspectives. The political infrastructure is being rigged, right? Partisan gerrymandering in our Congress, this precedence we used to have for bipartisan cooperation, those are gone. There used to be a softball game where the Democrats and Republicans would play each other. Now they just play among themselves, right? They don't even interact. It used to be that our members of Congress lived in Washington, D.C., and their kids would go to the same schools. The spouses would organize the, the dinners together. That doesn't happen. They don't live in the district. They fly in on a Monday. They do their votes Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Then they fly out on Thursday. If you are leaving D.C. on a Thursday night, you're going to see elected officials in the plane with you. Right, because they're getting out of town. So they don't live there. That bipartisan precedent is eroding. Think of money in politics. It used to be that local monies funded local candidates. Mm -hmm. Well, now billionaires are funding my local race uh, because the stakes are high. And because of our increasingly homogenous electoral districts, they might not have an influence where they live. Mm -hmm. They might be able to make a difference in places where it's a little more competitive. Uh, think about... 
of the internet. I mean, search engine algorithms, think of what Google is doing when you start typing something in and it tells you the rest of your search and it's right. You know, that's scary. And it is predictive. It's based on our behavior. They're super sophisticated, insanely sophisticated. But these social media algorithms, they keep us in our echo chambers, keep us in our filter bubbles. We're never exposed to other viewpoints. Think about traditional media. You know, Mm -hmm. used to watch NBC, CBS, ABC. They're all pretty good. Now there's 3,000 choices, not three, right? And so now you decide, am I going to get the New York Times because I'm on the left or am I going to get the Wall Street Journal because I'm on the right? Am I going to watch Fox because I'm on the right or I'm going to watch MSNBC because I'm on the left? We soothe ourselves with this information because we don't want the stress when we come home. It's like, just give me the news I want to hear. And the news I want to hear makes me comfortable, but the news you should hear makes you will make you uncomfortable. And because of that, the big driver is the self-sort. It's people moving into communities that reflect their values. And who could blame them? But because of that, our communities are less and less diverse. Mm -hmm. Um, And on top of that, and then I'll be quiet about the the causes, uh, but on top of that, think of when we thought STEM education was our biggest problem in the United States. We had to be competitive with, at the time it was Japan. So we had to focus on math and engineering and technology and developing that. And what fell to the wayside? Social studies, learning government, learning civics. We're one of those few countries of the world where civics really matters because the government is us, Mm -hmm. right? And so if we have been now taught, not only do you not learn civics and government, but we're telling people, don't talk about politics and religion. Well, guess what we're really bad at? We're really bad at talking about politics and we're really bad at talking about religion because we have no practice, Right. It always, not always, but almost always feels bad when we do it because we don't know how to do it. Right. Right. So this is the compound effect. This is the drivers of our division. Mm -hmm. But that that was our path. And it it wasn't the Trump era. You know, Trump era has perhaps accentuated and accelerated certain things. Mm -hmm. But these trends have been in place for decades. Mm -hmm. And and that's where we are. We did not cause these trends. We are just now suffering because of them. We see them. But I see it like the way I see global climate change. We didn't cause that problem either, but we're living with it. And you might think, who am I? You know, you're Holly, I'm Kami, we're two people. What are we going to do to stop global climate change? You know, good luck. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, maybe we bike to work or walk to work, or maybe we carpool, or maybe we recycle, or maybe we buy locally sourced foods and we do what we can. Right. we're starting to do that now with social division is do what you can. And you find out that doing what you can within yourself, doing what you can interpersonally and doing what you can to address the systemic reasons that we're even in this mess. Those are all things within our control. And that control gives us a little bit of power and that power feels good because we're like, okay, I'm part of the solution. I can do something. Right, right. And I love that. I love that. Thank you for breaking that down. And and I love how you looked at it from like bottom down and grassroots up kind of perspectives on that too. And what, a, yeah, what an eye opener too is like, hey guys, you know, like our decision makers in Congress and stuff, just go to like play softball together. Do something like that. Like that sounds so interesting and, and like they totally doable and could actually solve a lot of issues. <laughs> so it's, you know, live, live in the same place, have your kids play together, right? Um, all of those things. And yeah, I think that can really make it, you know, a lot more robust conversations then because it's not just 
so divided and I don't know you, you don't know me, right? So, and if I try to get to know you, there's a lot of anger maybe and instead of those conversations, right? So I think that's really, really interesting. And then plus, like you said, even COVID, right, has perpetuated the isolation. And that's a huge thing. Like, like you said, you can order online, you can, you know, for your groceries, your movies, all of your things, where are the public spaces? Where are those public dialogues where you're going to meet people with different perspectives and be able to like, you know, have conversations with them? So that's a huge, instead of just being online behind your computer, where it might not be the best place to have those conversations, right? <laughs> Emojis sometimes aren't the best things to use. <laughs> so, yeah. So it's, it's so true. The, the way I think of, I think of two quotes that inspire me a lot. Uh, one of them is from uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who we lost in the last couple of years. But he said, uh, don't raise your voice, improve your argument. No, so how do we do that? How do we improve our arguments? Uh, the other one is from uh, Arth Brooks, and uh, he used to run the American Enterprise Institute. He's a social conservative. Uh, he says, we don't need to disagree less. We need to disagree better. Uh, yeah. So the point isn't that we're like, we've, we're trying to find that needle in the haystack. We're like, what's the one thing we do agree on? It's not really about that. It's about we can disagree. The whole point of being in a democratic system of government is we're not supposed to agree. But when we do disagree, we need to disagree in a way to where I understand your points, you understand mine, maybe we compromise a little bit, and maybe we find some kind of path forward, some way to carve out a little bit of progress. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think disagreeing, avoiding disagreement is not the point, uh, yeah. but just, and not even saying, let's agree to disagree. That's not even the point. Uh, the point is to say, I hear you, I understand your points, I disagree with your points, and here's why, and we can advocate and learn. And then next time I am confronted with this issue, I will have a much stronger awareness of it. And ultimately, I think that's what's going to drive the social good that we seek to achieve, at least in terms of healing our social division, is yeah. listening and understanding. And so when we talk about solutions, and I'm I'm happy to talk about that whenever you want, but uh, I think that's the thing that gives my makes my eyes open a little wider and think, yeah, you know what? there's reason for hope. Yeah. I am. Yeah. Hope is, is needed. Right. Mm -hmm. And you, you brought up that word to advocacy. So I just kind of wanted to throw that kind of in, uh, in the pivot now, as far as like a lot of nonprofits, when they think of, well, yeah, I'd like to bring my voice to this issue. However, I'm a part of an I'm institutionalized as a 501c3, you know, under the IRS. And according to what I, I can't lobby, I can't raise my voice to this. I might lose my 501c3 status if I raise my voice to this. So they kind of feel stuck because they want to be a part of that movement, but they don't feel like they can. And they kind of feel, you know, can you kind of talk to that then? What are some ways that they can still be advocates for what they believe in, um, but keep their status as well? Yeah, it's a it's such a big question, and it's big for a lot of reasons. So we've got about one and a half million nonprofits in the United States. It's roughly 10% of the American workforce. It's like the third largest industry right behind manufacturing and retail. Uh, so it's, it's a huge sector. Uh, so for that many people to feel like I can't say what I really think on issues because I can lose my 501c3 status, or I could get in otherwise jeopardize my the cause that I care about so much. It's 
it's a big question, right? So the way that I encourage people to think about it is, look, you can't say pass this specific piece of legislation and then go out and rally you know, people for it. The government didn't create the tax incentives for nonprofits to advocate for very specific pieces of legislation or for very specific candidates. Mm -hmm. They created these incentives so that we could, in the nonprofit community, go and solve the problems in our society. So if we think I can only solve this problem through this candidate, or I can only solve this problem through this uh, legislation, then what our job becomes, and this is our workaround, is to educate people, not to advocate, but to educate. And education, and we talked a little bit about this. So let's say that your organization is devoted to a, the social justice issue of somehow addressing the racial wrongs that have existed in the United States. Your education might talk about the transatlantic slave trade. It might talk about the Civil War. It might talk about the 13th and 14th Amendments. It might talk about you know, Abraham Lincoln. It might talk about the Civil Rights Movement. It might talk about Jim Crow laws. It might talk about uh, Ahmaud Arbery. It might talk about Michael Brown. It might talk about very contemporary things, but the point is it's educating. And it's saying, this is the these are root causes. These are examples throughout our history. This is a three-fifths compromise. This was part of our constitution, right? These are these are just facts that we're sharing uh, about the way that our, our country has existed. And you could even say this passionately, this is just the reality of how we are as a nation. Right. What do we do about that is a different story. At least you can understand how communities have been marginalized historically. And for better or for worse, maybe this person, you did not cause this modern person, you didn't cause it, but, but uh, you're living in it, right? So you can be part of the solution. And you may have inherited certain privileges uh, as a result of these systems, right? And that's, these are just realities. So I think it's fair to, to say, that's just an example, but to say education is that path forward that doesn't require picking candidates or picking legislation and still advocating in a way for your cause. And I'd say when you're advocating as a nonprofit, beware your language. Because no matter what you say, there's going to be someone on your back saying they were deeply offended, hurt, you're part of the problem, I'm taking away my money, I'm going to now lobby against you, and we don't want that. Right. So how do you communicate in a way that's not going to alienate your donor base? And I think we have to be really careful with language. And so think about not just the language that your base likes. So that's the emotional side of your brain. That's the part of you that says, I strongly believe in this, but the side that people who are even opposed to you, what is it that they oppose? What is it they oppose in the thing that you want to advocate? And why do they? What are they scared of? Are they scared of violence? Then avoid using words that will trigger images of violence in their minds if you don't wanna lose those audiences. What is it they are afraid of? Is they afraid of losing power and prestige? Then maybe use language that makes them not feel like their power or prestige is at stake because it's usually not, you know? It's, uh, that's the perception. So we have to be mindful of those perceptions in crafting our messaging. And how do you do that? You listen. You listen to what they their concerns are. And for a lot of us, we don't want to listen. We don't want to listen. We don't care. Those people are the problem. I don't care what they have to say. I'm focused on getting past those people, not listening to them. But I tell you, as a strategy, listening even to your opponents, and I'm calling them opponents, not enemies, because they're not our enemies. Mm -hmm. We're listening to our opponents. 
then we can learn from them what it is about our own messaging that is threatening. And then we can improve our messaging to expand the audience that we're looking to serve. Then you won't lose donors, you'll gain them. Yes, I love that. I, I love that listening to other people's perspectives and even a uh, couple therapy. Right. With a, with a mediator. <laughs> so like setting up those, um, those talks and that's such a great way for nonprofits to still advocate, right. Uh, quote unquote. Um, but that using education. And I love that because once again, it's like them not pointing fingers or anything, but Hey, let's just look at let's look at the big picture here let's break it down and and let's figure this out that way and that way you can really get people too to understand it that have opposing views to be like oh or to even change their view because now all of a sudden they understand the big picture and that like you said i love that it's not my fault but i'm in this system you know and i even find and a lot of gender work that i do as well like even a lot of women realize, oh, I'm biased against women. You know what I mean? Like, even though I'm a woman, like, and I never realized that because uh, it's this whole system. So there's a lot of epiphanies that can happen within discussion that can be more educational rather than just, um, you know, in, in other ways, right? Because there, there can be a lot of anger around a lot of these issues from people that feel like, they're not getting what they need, right? So that's the thing is like, how can we break it down without that high energy anger, right? And have those conversations. So you you kind of neutralize it a little bit with the education, right? Without neutering the topic, for better word to say it, right? So I love that. Yeah, I think you're ex you're exactly right. And uh, And the point of it really is like, think about the feeling of love. The feeling of love is when is chemicals in our brain that that are soothing, right? They they make us feel a certain way. When a person feels heard, those same chemicals are released. So feeling heard is the same as feeling loved. So even for someone who is your political opponent, if you listen to them in a way with curiosity, genuine curiosity, I'm not listening to judge. I'm listening because I really want to understand where the hell are these ideas coming from, right? How long have you had those views? You know, uh, why are these, why is this issue so important to you? Like really you're listening with curiosity, then that person will feel heard. And if they feel heard, then wow, their brain is now washed in the love chemicals. And when that happens, they build trust. Mm -hmm. And you cannot convince someone of the merits of your side of an issue mm -hmm. if they don't trust you. You know, they will never listen, ever, ever, ever. So if you develop that trust by listening, then all of a sudden you have a power now that you didn't have before just by listening. And with that power, now you can use that power to say, well, you know, on the other hand, here's another way to look at the issue. Or do you know that there's more to this than, than you may have been exposed to? Let me just share some of my experience, my knowledge. And you go... You use your ethos, logos, pathos. Here's some emotional story I'll share with you. Here's some statistics about the issue I'll share with you. Here's some experts who have this and that to say about the issue. Uh, and suddenly uh, we get past that defensiveness. But unless a person feels hurt, that armor will be up high, right? We need the defense to come down so we can feel it. And listening is hard to do. You know, mm -hmm. our brains can process about 400 words a minute. 
And if I'm talking fast, I can talk about 125 words a minute. So there's a big gap. And most of the time when people think they're listening, they're still filling that gap with unrelated things like how long is this podcast or how, when can I go write my five-star review, uh, right? So they're filling it with, with other things. And, and that's normal. When you listen with curiosity, you're using your entire capacity to focus on what the person has to say because you really want to know. Um, and that's hard to do, but it's it's such a good goal because the best thing you can do to advocate for your cause, and it seems counterintuitive, but the best thing is to go out and listen to people who disagree with you. Look up Daryl Davis, the black blues musician who went to KKK rallies to listen to these Klansmen about, why do you hate me? You do not know me. You've never met me. How can you possibly hate me? And he genuinely wanted to understand. That man, for as brave as he was to do that, has converted over 80 people from the Klan. They gave him their robes and said, Mr. Davis, I never met black man I liked until I met you. And then and they were exposed to their own racism. They had not seen it before, but he helped them see it. That's not everyone can be a Daryl Davis, right? Yeah. Not everyone has that. But we can all be a little bit that way and just take a little bit of extra effort and say, I'm going to listen to you because it's in my best interest to avoid conflict, to understand where you're coming from, to gain a power of your trust that I can then use to put more of your energy into what I care about. Right. I love that. I love that so much. And that perspective, right, of how do you really break it down? You, It's not going to be the natural thing that you think, right? It's going to be going and listening to somebody else. So so as far as nonprofits, and so, so if they're... Um, you know, advocate or they're, well, maybe not advocating, educating, providing services, et cetera, for their cause. And, you know, they're thinking about their donors though. Like, do you think just providing that educational kind of neutral level thing is okay? They're, they're not feeling like they're cutting off their donors, or do you think that should even be something they're concerned about? Um, you know, as far as moving forward, like a lot of people, they might be scared to to talk and they'll say, yeah, absolutely the word scared, right? Fear to talk about some of these issues, even if it's an educational realm because they're afraid of cutting off their donors. Do you think that's important to consider or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, and I know what you mean. And it's a tough, it's a tough line, right? So a lot of it depends on your uh, identity as an organization. So some organizations, their identity is a little more uh, issue forward. Yeah. Um, and so they are known to be more outspoken on these issues. So if there's a, let's say there's an oil spill, then people will, will they go to the beach cleanup organization and say, what did you think about this oil spill? That's very relevant for them to yeah. address it. Uh, if there was a policeman beating a young black man, the environmental group should they make a statement about that? They might feel very strongly about that from their leadership position, but is that really in line with their mission? Uh, and I'd say for organizations, that's what they should question the most and, and ask themselves the most. Am I speaking out on this issue because we are personally as human beings motivated by our own individual values? Or are we speaking out because it serves our mission to do it? This advances our mission to do it. If it advances your mission, then you have a lot more latitude uh, mm -hmm. to speak out on, on these issues and to and to be forward on them. If it's not in your lane or anywhere near your lane, then 
you run that risk. You might want to take that risk anyways, because you're like, it's worth it. I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say what we think. And we're going to let everyone know this is what we think. But I'd say, uh, think twice about doing that. The world is full of people who are giving their opinions. You know, we don't, you don't need to look far to find an opinion there. Everybody's got them. So I don't know how much good it's going to do for someone to say, this is my opinion. What it can do is to provide some leadership and to provide some listening and to help increase the light while decreasing the heat. How can your organization do that? What is your unique role in mitigating this conflict and mitigating these problems that you're seeing? And I think that can be really helpful. So your organization, the beach cleanup organization might say, we are going to be working with different faith organizations so we can have a conversation around race and then we're gonna go clean up the beach. Like, mm-hmm. great. That is very much on mission and a useful way for, to rally people around something that is bigger than themselves and say, look, no matter what our race and what our views, we all care about the environment, so we're going to contribute. We also care about each other, so we're going to listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to answer your question a long way, yes, it really d- depends on your identity as a brand, as an organization. I love that. And I love that spotlight too is, yeah, I mean, sometimes it is important to, you know, put your mark or be a part of these movements on social media, um, you know, that you can help expand the message, but you're right. Everyone has an opinion and we're kind of tired of seeing everyone's opinion in a way too. So if it connects to your mission though, then it's really powerful. Um, You know, I've been a part of um, the Guam Women's Chamber of Commerce and a lot of times the newspapers will reach out specifically for us on on our, you know, our, our, what our position is on a lot of topics that connect with women's issues. And that makes sense, right? So, um, but a lot of times we have to say, should we make a position on this thing? And we always go back, does it, what's our mission then? Does it tie into the mission? Does it tie into our values? How aligned is it, right? So, and that talks a lot of conversation with the board members to say, that have a lot of different differing opinions to be like, and then we do votes even, right? When it's kind of a borderline thing, we have to vote on it. We have discussion and vote on it because, uh, and people need to be heard, like you said. So it's really, that's where I found a lot of good way forward. And it's not like, oh, I don't like that girl because she didn't vote aligned with me. It's like, you know, okay, I see that. I see that as well. I see that point or whatnot. So to be mindful of that. Um, and, and then that overall creates bigger and better dialogue within the community as well sometimes if we don't take a position so it's okay we can still have those conversations then or have a forum on it right so and let people i think that i think that's so true you know a lot of times it's the loudest voices that are the ones that get heard and most of the people in our in our organizations and our societies they are not the the loud voices right so it turns out that and this is true in politics right it's it's those extremes that are quick to rush in quick to have uh, high volume opinions, uh, but a lot of times the high volume opinions are wrong, and a lot of times those high volume opinions are not ones that are commonly shared. But when we, the listeners, are hearing it, we think that's the norm because we're not talking to each other, we're not serving a hundred people that we just spoke with. So we assume, like, gosh, that extreme view of, that must be shared by everyone on that side, and it's often not. Right. Most of us end up being in the middle, um, and I think we need to, as nonprofit leaders, be mindful of that. But just because we heard it on, on cable news uh, doesn't necessarily mean that's what our donors think. <laughs> they are probably tempered at by several degrees, and that's closest to where we are. 
Um, there's a concept in psychology they call superordination. And what that means is recognizing that you don't have to find common ground, recognize that you already have common ground. So an instance of that might be a, a nonprofit organization that has a shipping and a receiving department. You could say, we're shipping, oh, we're receiving. Well, we're all the same company. And we're like, well, our company is in LA. Well, our company's in New York. Well, we have the same mission, so we care about that same mission, right? And so these it's just this ways of increasing that circle of who's in your in-group, who's in your out-group. And when you think about it, if you keep expanding your in-group using superordination, soon everybody's in it, right? Because we're all human beings uh, and none of us want to be in, in this state of conflict. None of us want this. Maybe there's a few stragglers who are on the outside, but those are the true extremists. And most of us want the same things. We want safety. We want love in our lives. We want what's best for our families. We just want to leave the world in a better place than, than we found it. Uh, we want to do good and live a good life. Uh, and, and that motivation is in all of us. It's in, it's in our hearts. Sometimes it's not at the tip of our tongues because our, our defense is so high and because of the state that the world has put us in. But when you peel that away, lower the defense, that's what's left, that we can relate to each other as human beings. And the faster we get there as nonprofit leaders, the more likely we are to be supported financially by our donor base. I love that. I love that perspective. And yeah, it's so true. So how do you then, you know, we, we talk about, and, um, you know, we talk about having conversations, having meaningful education, getting, building up, you know, that, that group, right. With different perspectives to find the common ground, but especially within our days now of being online in a way you can advance it larger because you've been online and technology, but on another way, like you said, you're missing those baseball games together. You're missing that common space. Um, so how can nonprofits, you know, what kind of, are there new spaces for them? What kind of spaces can they kind of go to, to find those common ground and to find that, that, um, you know, to get more people into know about what they're talking about as far as their education and their advocacy. Right. So for nonprofits, just like nonprofits are like all of us, like uh, individuals, we tend to surround ourselves with uh, people who are more or less like-minded. Um, mm -hmm. And so when you end up with uh, like-minded or homogenous situations, then you kind of get into this more of a group thing, right? And for our nonprofits, if we're thinking, I, I want money from anybody who cares about the cause that I care about, we want to kind of burst out of our echo chamber, burst out of our, our bubble, and widen the net of who might be interested in, in our cause. And so to do that, we have to be super mindful. Mm -hmm. uh, where can I find people where they are? People are not generally inclined to want to build bridges to places of discomfort. Yeah. Why would they do that, right? So we have to, we have to build those bridges uh, to where they are. So let's say you've got an organization that is about uh, providing uh, food for the homeless. And typically, it's going to be liberal do-gooders who are funding those causes. Uh, that's what we think. Mm -hmm. uh, but it turns out that there's a lot of uh, evangelical Christians who are very conservative, who strongly believe in providing food for the homelessness, for the homeless. So we need to be mindful of that in our within our own organizations and say, how can we get more evangelicals to come to our organizations? They are in their faith-based faith -based institutions. So maybe we go there. Maybe we put one of them on our board. Maybe uh, we use language that 
is not triggering for them so that they can be more receptive to us. And we have, I think we have to intentionally build those bridges to those places where we know good hearted people are, but we've just, we've so got our blinders on for our own, uh, our own communities that we see as, as homogenous, uh, that we don't think about them. Um, I, th I think ultimately that's really it is being mindful of the fact that everybody is in our inner circle. It's just about how we frame our thinking to include them or exclude them. And we don't want to exclude them. Uh, we want their money. We want their resources. We want their, their clout and their power because we want to make the changes that our organizations were geared to, to provide. Uh, and so that means who you, who's your demographic? Every nonprofit leader says, well, my core demographic is A, you know, first A, then B, then C. Well, yeah, or my demographic is everybody, really, and we can just target them in different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it becomes your marketing strategies vary, your board compositions vary, uh, your messaging varies, uh, but ultimately your mission stays the same. Yeah, I love that. I love that too. Instead of like, well, let's go to their place and try to convert them with <laughs> our messaging, it's like, no, let's invite them in. So having someone on your board member or your board who may have a completely different background, but can bring that perspective in is so important, right? So, I mean, that's that's a really good way to do things and to reach out to people. So I love that. And I love everything that you're talking about today. And I think it's really going to resonate with a lot of you people out there because, you know, we we are in such this oh, it's bipolar and it feels stressful, right? Like, I think we're kind of in a constant state of anxiety with with how divisive everything is. But just from this conversation, like my shoulders already started to relax because it's like, yeah, to say, oh, there's ways forward that don't seem overwhelming, that don't seem um, confrontational in, in the, you know, in the traditional sense of confrontation. So I, I really like this. So is there anything else you want to um, close out today um, before we uh, stop the show so you can share with others on the way forward and hope in all of this? Yeah. So uh, I'll offer a couple of things. So one is in the moment, sometimes our emotions get the better of us and we want to, we end up saying the wrong thing. And sometimes that emotional state can last for minutes, hours, or days, right? So uh, some something triggers us. That's very normal to do that. So how do we get out of that state and make sure we're thinking of making the best decision we can possibly make? Honestly, one of the best things is breathing. Um, take that deep breath. Make sure you you calm yourself down. It gets into what's called slow thinking versus fast thinking. It goes from this limbic system, reptile brain, into that prefrontal cortex. It uses very different pathways uh, of decision making. Mm -hmm. So. We want to make sure that we're not just reacting, that we're being proactive and really making those good decisions. So honestly, breathing is important. And these are so basic and I feel dumb for even saying them, but I'm telling you, they really are important. Uh, is breathing, getting good sleep, yeah. you know? Uh, when we don't do that, we often make poor decisions. So that, that matters a lot. Seek opposing views in your own personal life. There are things you can do intrapersonally within yourself. Why was I triggered? Why do I feel that way? What can I do to bring new perspectives into my life to make sure I'm not in my in an echo chamber? I'm not in a bubble. I want to keep growing my my mind and challenging my thoughts, uh, and how and and doing that intentionally, right? So I think all, all of those things things matter, but it has to come with intention. We have to decide. I want to be a better person. I want to learn new things. I don't want to just keep 
reinforcing my same views because what if my views are wrong? <laughs> you know, so uh, it's it's doing that. Uh, and I think staying mission focused, you can't say enough about it, right? The, that that makes all decisions easier. You know, when we don't know what to do, what's the mission? Ah, okay, now I know what to do. So all of those things, and then I'll encourage people to check out the Listen First project, which will teach a variety of listening skills. It's an umbrella group of about 400 organizations that are in the listening space. Yeah. So if what I'm saying is not resonating, someone else will say it in a different way, better way, universities, think tanks, the faith-based institutions, NGOs, business organizations, ones that are specifically in the NGO community. So many people are rushed into this space. So the cavalry is coming over the hill. We all want to end the social division. We all want to continue powering our, our, our nonprofit organizations. Uh, and I really admire you, Holly. I'm a fan of the show, so I appreciate you inviting me uh, to be able to discuss these things with you. So thank you. Thank you so much. This has been such a great, great conversation. So once again, uh, Kami Akavan and you can, or Akavan, and you guys can definitely check him out at the Center for Political Future at the University of Southern California. You have some courses there too. And where can people find your website? We'll definitely have it in the show notes as well, but just if you have a quick click. Yeah, the URL is long. So I'll say the best <laughs> thing to do is Google Center for the Political Future at USC. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter, uh, where uh, I'm happy to, to follow you right back uh, if you follow me. And I post a lot of articles about uh, overcoming social division there and sharing some of my nonprofit strategies that I've learned uh, from over the years as well. Right. Awesome. So I'll definitely have the links in the show notes, you guys. So definitely do check out Kami and all the work that you're doing over there because it is so good and refreshing. And there's actually hope forward to this so we can actually be less divided, right? That's what we want. Like you said, get those love signals of being heard. <laughs> so yes, thank you so much for coming on the Grant Writing and Funding Podcast. And I hope to have you again in the future. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Kami Akavan. He is really great. Once again, if you want to check out all of the information about Kami, do jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com forward slash 238. And if you would do me a favor, please leave a review on your podcast player. And if you leave me a review, go ahead and snap a picture and send it to holly at grantwritingandfunding.com. I do love to make sure I see all of the reviews that come in um, as I also like to read them sometimes on the podcast. All right, so next week we have a wonderful guest again on the show, and we are doing a drum roll. We are going to be giving, doing a giveaway. So if you want to find out more information on our giveaway, do jump over to grantwritingandfunding.com because you could win something super cool, and we're going to talk about it next week. I hope you have a wonderful week, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.